Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Father, thanks for this day and for being here and allowing us to read and study your word, open our hearts as we spend time here, give us insight and understanding. And I pray that we would not only understand it, but that it would change our lives and make us different. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we got through verse 1 last, last week. Paul says, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And um, what, uh, what we talked about is the whole concept of the carnal Christian versus the spiritual Christian versus the unbeliever. And um, when I was growing up, I was taught that there are really three classes of people. You can take anybody in the world and drop them into one of three buckets. They're a spiritual Christian, they're a carnal Christian, or they're an unbeliever. Um, and I was taught that you could be a carnal Christian for the rest of your life. Um, somebody could, you know, as long as you prayed the prayer and signed the card and, you know, did whatever, um, you were in. And it didn't matter whether your life changed or not. That was sort of irrelevant. Um, as long as you made your commitment to Christ, you're in. Um, the scripture doesn't know anything about that concept. Um, it says if you're creation in Christ, you're new. You're new. You're different. You're not the same. doesn't mean you're perfect or you never have problems. Of course, we all struggle. But we struggle. We struggle with our spiritual life. Where there's no struggle, there's no life. Um, and Paul teaches and, and the Bible teaches very clearly that Christianity is a change in life. It's a change in direction. You're not the same person you used to be. Um, and carnal Christian as a permanent categorization is not a biblical term, a biblical concept. Now, you could be a Christian acting carnally, right? And what does it mean to act carnally? We talk about that. What does it mean to act carnally? Of the world, of the flesh. And what is your flesh? Your members. Yeah, that includes your members, right? What is your flesh? When we talk about the flesh, when Paul says your battle is fleshly, what, what, what's he talking about there? Everything but your spirit? Your old nature? Well, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. You sit there. I don't bite. All right. <laughs> Good night. We eat. I got some politics. Look at this. That's supper. You know. If he fall, if he starts snoring, hit him. Okay. No. Um, I'm glad you brought that that statement up because there there are some people that have this idea. And I don't want to get into this too much because we'll never get through verse one tonight. I um, don't want to do that. But but it's it's important to understand this concept because it's going to pop up a couple of different times here as we discuss through our way through Corinthians. We work our way through Corinthians. But um, just as there's no such thing as a carnal Christian, um, the Bible teaches that your old nature is dead. Now, what does it mean if your old nature is dead? It's dead. It's not there. No longer a fact. It's not there. Now, what is there? 
humanity, which is your flesh. Okay, that right. If you got that, you've you've just understood now Romans six, seven, eight. All right. We didn't get that. <laughs> if you understand that. We didn't understand that. Okay. What is your flesh? Your flesh is your fallen, unredeemed humanity. Okay? The flesh. Let's, let's understand terms. Your flesh in, in the Bible is your fallen, and it's, uh, it's unredeemed. Unredeemed. And I should say, it is unredeemable. Okay? Redeemable. Humanity. What do we mean by that? It is your fallen desires. It, it is those desires within you um, <clears throat> that cause you to sin. It's your fallenness. All right? And when you became a believer, you didn't lose your flesh. You still have it. And that's what Paul says in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Why do I do that? Well, I am fleshy. And that's the only place, by the way, that, that term ever appears in the Bible. He says, I am fleshy. Okay? I am fleshy. Um, I have this fallenness that, that I lug around. What is the fallenness? It is the selfishness that and, and the sinful um, desires and bent that we all have. All right. Now, some use the term old nature to refer to that. They talk about your old nature and your new nature. Strictly speaking, old nature in the Bible is a term used for your identification with Adam. All right. Old nature. What is your old nature? Your old nature, as it, as it, as it is defined in Romans and in um get the other passage is your is your identification with Adam. And and Paul says the old man has been crucified with him. All right, and that term there that he uses is a verb tense that means it is dead, it is gone. All right. Your old nature was your identification with Adam in his sin. All right. When you became a believer, what happened to that identification? And who are you identified with now? With Christ. That's Romans 5. I was identified with Adam. Now I am identified with Christ. Therefore, the old nature or the old man is crucified. It's dead. It's gone. I'm no longer identified with Adam, but I still have this fallen flesh, this humanness that I lug around with me. It is fallen. It is enmity against God. Um, it is unredeemable. How does God ultimately deal with your flesh? He kills it. <laughs> that's, that's how you deal with it. You get a new body. You get, you get a, you, you're either glorified when Christ comes again, if you're still alive, or when you're resurrected, you get a new body. You get a new, new one. It's your flesh is an unredeemable, incorrigible component. It hates God. It does not want to do what God wants us to do. It's all those desires, all those those wants that you have within you 
that cause you to sin. When do I get the new body? In the medium, in, in paradise or in the community? In the resurrection, you get your new body. When you die, you're freed from this fallenness. You're freed from it. While I'm waiting. While you're alive. No, wait, wait. When you my resurrection, at what time do I get the body? After the resurrection. Throne, after the white throne judgment? No. In the believer's sense, it's before that. Okay, so right. as I'm waiting for Christ's return. Right. You don't have a body then, but you will get a glorified body. But, okay, your flesh right now is that hunk that I see. That's what I see. It, it consists of your physical life. And what's in your physical body? It's desires, right? Now, are desires in and of themselves evil? In and of themselves, they're not. It's how you deal with them that cause you to sin or not. All right. Being thirsty is not evil. You know, how you deal with that thirst may cause you to sin. All right. Desires aren't evil. It's it's what we do with them. When, but because we're fallen, because we have this this corruption that we got from where? Where do we get our corruption? Adam. All right. This corruption, you don't have to learn to sin. You do it naturally. It, it just comes to you. Right. You don't have to practice being a sinner. And what is sin? Sin is exalting self over others, self over God. What you want, not what God wants. What you desire, not what God desires. That's that's, And we all struggle with that. And that's what Paul says in Romans 7. My struggle is with my flesh. I struggle with that. And when I accede as a believer, when I accede to the desires of the flesh, I am acting carnally. Right? I'm allowing my flesh to tell me what to do. And that's what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, I have this principle within me. I want to do good, but I have a contrary principle of sin, which is in my members, that's dragging me down. And when I, when I give in to my desires, my sinful desires, I am acting in a carnal fashion. I am sinning. But I don't want to do that. Paul says, I, as a believer, I want to do the right thing. I want to be a godly person. I don't want to sin. No, but when I'm in heaven, am I a disembodied spirit or yeah. do I have body and spirit in heaven? You have some kind of body there, not a physical body as, as we have here. Well, it, it, can't, it can't become ill. Yeah, it's, it's a different. And, and the Bible doesn't really tell us. I'll be able to recognize you and pick you out, although you are not yet in a glorified state with a physical body. Or, or the, the permanent physical Yeah, you don't have that. And so when Paul's talking to the Corinthians here, he's saying, you guys are acting carnally. He's not saying you're carnal in the sense that that is a continuing state of existence and you're just going to live the rest of your life in, an, in a rebellious, unrepentant state. All right? If you are a true believer, God's not going to let you do that. <laughs> He's not going to let you get away with that. He's going to bring in judgment. He's going to bring in conviction, whatever. He's not going to allow you to just sin the rest of your life with no care. As a believer, you can't do that because you're different. You will have a struggle. And I think all you know, most of us in here can relate to times in our spiritual life where we may have gone astray for a period of time. And how did it feel? You know, bad. <laughs> you don't want to do that. 
And Paul is telling the Corinthian believers that you guys aren't acting spiritual, you're acting carnal. All right. And, and the idea there is what is controlling your thinking? What is controlling your actions? Is it your flesh? Or is it the Spirit of God? All right. All of us are, are going to be controlled by one of those two things. We're going to allow our flesh to define what we do. We're going to allow God to define what we do. When we allow our flesh, we're acting in a carnal way. And what Paul is saying in Romans 6 is you don't have to be carnal. Now the problem, the unbeliever, they, they can't help but sin. There's nothing they can do about it. As a believer, we have the Holy Spirit within us that enables us to finally obey. We can finally do that. We don't have to sin. So don't say, well, the devil made me do it. I can't help it. No, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. That's no excuse. As for a believer, it's your fault. It's your fault. You sin, it's your fault. Because you're acting according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. And Paul is telling the Corinthian believers, you're acting according to the flesh. You don't, you shouldn't do that. And when I'm talking to you, I gotta talk to you as carnal children because you've not grown up. You've not grown up as, 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 he says, I gotta speak to you as, as babes in Christ. I can't talk to you as mature spiritual believers. And I, and all I'm trying to get at here, when you talk spiritual carnal, you gotta understand it in the context of the passage. Alright? Because in Romans 8, Paul talks about spiritual and carnal, and there he's talking about believers and unbelievers. Because in Romans chapter 8, he says to be carnally minded is death. Who's, who's gonna die spiritually? Believers? No. And there in, in Romans 8, in the context of Romans 8, he is talking about a state of existence. The carnally minded people are dead. They do not have Christ. They are not believers. They are unbelievers. The spiritual people have Christ. Just read Romans 8 and it makes all the sense in the world. Here he's saying as the believers, the, the, the church, they're acting, you're acting in a carnal way. You're acting like an unbeliever, even though you are a believer. You're allowing yourself to act in a manner contrary to what you really are. You shouldn't do that. And because of that, I've got to speak to you in a different manner than I would like to speak to you. i got to speak to you as spiritual children. You know, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. From until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you're still not able for you are still carnal. What he's talking about there, generally as new believers. I mean, I mean, this is what, this is what Paul is trying to generally get at here. All right, as a believer, how should you live? All right, what he's saying is, as a, as a Christian. You start out very carnal, all right? But as a Christian, you should become more spiritual if you want to grow a little graph. The older you are, the longer you're a Christian, your carnality should decrease, your spirituality should increase. What does it mean to be spiritual? To be led by the Spirit, right? How are you led by the Spirit? 
through the Word of God. All right. And hopefully that is where you all are at. Hopefully you're all somewhere working your way down this way. When you when, generally when you're a young Christian, you act more currently because you don't know any better, right? You're not you've not learned, you've not matured, right? And as you grow in Christ, as you understand more of His grace and understand more of who He is and understand the Word of God more and more, what should happen? You should become more spiritual. Your carnality should go down. Your spirituality should go up. Now, as a believer, even as a, a mature believer, can you still fall and act in a carnal way? Sure. But the, the, the level of carnality should be severely diminished from what it was when you were just an early believer. Paul is telling these Corinthian believers, he says, you know, I've had to be feeding you milk all along like little kids. I've had to feed you milk because you're not able to handle the, the solid food. And even now, you can't really handle it, although you should be able to handle it because you've been a Christian long enough. And if anything, what you see Paul hinting at here is he's saying, he's saying the normal thing is for you as a Christian to grow up. Right? I mean, is it normal for a baby to stay a baby? No, that's not a normal thing. You should grow up. And Paul's saying you need to grow up. You need to, he said, I had to talk to you as, as carnal. And why is that? For you are still carnal. And in what way are they carnal? He says it here. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? How, 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 do, how does he know that they're carnal? Generally, how can you look at the Corinthian church and assess really quickly that they're all carnal? Their behavior, their divisions, envy, strife. Now, why is that? What's, what's, the, what's he trying to get at here? Okay, well, let's look at it this way. And I told you I can't draw worth a nickel. All right, so forgive me. You got two people here, all right? There's a person, and there's a person here, all right? Huh? They're anorexic. I don't know. They're pretty thin. All right, now, if there is, pretend they're both Christians, all right? So if they're both Christians, then generally, how can they be, how can they act, either spiritual or carnal, right? Okay? So with saying that, if one of them is spiritual and one of them is carnal, what happens? Division. division, right? If they're both carnal, what happens? Division. division. All right. See, I see getting it, right? See? If one's carnal and the other is spiritual, guess what? You still got division. Where does division end? When they're both acting according to the spirit. Why is that? Because if I'm acting in the spirit, and you're acting in the spirit, then we're acting like the spirit. Both of us are. So we are acting like we should act, right? Whereas if you're one of us or both of us are being carnal and wanting our own way and doing our own thing, you're going to have conflict and division. So you see conflict and division in a church. Generally, what can you assume? One or both of them or all of them are carnal. Generally, that's what you can... Now, again, we're, we're excluding such things as 
dividing over doctrinal, essential doctrinal things. That's we're not talking about. That's that's a separate discussion. We're talking about generally in a church. If I if I walk into a church and you got two women fighting, you got two men fighting, you got family feuds going on. Generally, they're acting carnally. One or all of them are acting carnally. Because the spirit, what does the spirit do? The spirit brings unity. The spirit brings peace. Because if I'm if I'm walking in the spirit, what do I want? If I'm walking in the spirit, what do I want for you? I want the God's best for you, right? And I'm going to defer my own little petty ideas about what I want. And I'm going to consider your feelings and your thoughts and, and, and listen to you. And if you're walking in the spirit, what are you going to do to me? The same thing. You're going to want to, you know, and, and you're going to have harmony. Whereas if one of us is walking in the, in the flesh, you know, it's like I want my own way, my way or the highway. You know, and I'm going to fight. And I'm going to scrap. I'm going to be selfish. And Paul is telling Corinthians, you know, the reason I know you guys are carnal is when I look at your church, you've got divisions. you got envy, strife, divisions among you. And that is not spiritual. Period. It's not a spiritual thing. And, you know, one of the one of the things I've been around the church long enough to know how this stuff works. And that is that when you have people in the church with, and, and you have a divisive person in the church, they're convinced they're standing up for God, usually. You know, they're standing for the truth in an uncompromising, godly way. Well, let me tell you what God says. God says if you're bringing division you're over non-essential doctrine, you're not godly. Don't kid yourself. Don't make yourself think that you're godly. You know, um, it doesn't work that way. Um, and I've seen people get mad and leave this church and go somewhere else. They get mad there, leave that church, go somewhere else, get mad there, leave that church, go somewhere else. And, and you know, they're thinking all along, you know, they're being godly and standing for the Lord. They're just, they're just acting in a carnal way. Because if you're walking in the Spirit, you don't want your own, right? That's what Philippians 2 says, right? Let this mind be in you. It's in Christ who did not, you know, grab on to his equality with God, but gave it up and was willing to defer and willing to think of others and don't consider your own things, but consider the things of others. Put others first. That's what God calls us to do. This church wasn't doing that. They were fighting over everything. He says, when one, and, and, how, and he says, you're behaving like mere men. What's he saying when he means you're behaving like mere men? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. That's what you get. That's what unbelievers do, right? Look at Congress. You want to figure that one out? That's how that's how unbelievers act, right? Fight, scrap, elbow, get ahead. You know, you, you, the last thing you want to do is defer to someone else. In the church, we're called to defer to others, to consider them ahead of ourselves, consider their needs above our needs. And Paul is saying, you're not doing that because one says, I'm Paul and I'm Apollos. Aren't you, Carl? If you got one person, well, I follow Paul. You know, said, no, Apollos is a better teacher than Paul. I don't like Paul. I like Apollos. And they're scrapping out who they follow. Come, I mean, again, look at Congress. I mean, you know, I'm going to follow this guy. I'm going to follow this guy. I'm going to follow this guy and fight and scrap and holler and. I mean that that's that's the way the world is. You look, it's not to be that way in church. Who ultimately are we to follow? Christ. We're to follow Christ. 
And Paul is saying, when you, when I look at your church and I see you got the, the Paulites running over here and you got the Paulites over here and you got the Peterites over there, something's not right. You guys are acting carnally. Because who is Paul and who's Apollos but servants? Who are they? They're servants. They're ministers. They're, 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 they're workers for God through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one. As the Lord gave to each one. What does it mean? What, does he, what do you think he's trying to get at there? Right. And God God gifts different people to do different things, but we're all working for the same ultimate we should be working for the same ultimate goal. And that's what Paul says when he's in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. He says, I want you to all be like minded. The idea of like mindedness is there is not you all think the same thoughts or you all, you know, share the same ideas. But that you all share the same goal. You always you want to. We want to win spiritually. How do we do that? You're all working towards the same goal. You're not. You're not working against each other. And the greatest ploy that Satan has, I think, in the church today, is he gets us fighting each other so that we never get around to fighting him. We're too busy fighting each other over stuff that doesn't matter. There's some things that do matter. There's a lot of things that just, it doesn't matter, folks. It does not matter. It doesn't. And he's saying, I planted Apollos water, but who brought the fruit? Paul said, I didn't save anybody. I just happened to plant the seed. Apollos, he certainly didn't save anybody. What did he do? He came along and watered. God gave the increase. And it's not the one who plants, verse 7, or the one who waters, but of God who brings the produce. It's, it's not me. It's not Apollos. We're nothing special. Who's the one that produces spiritual life and growth? Christ does. I can't make you guys grow spiritually. There's nothing I can do to help you grow spiritually. It's got to be God that does it. I might be the talking head that brings the truth of the word of God here to bear, but you know what? I can't make you any I can't make you spiritual. I can't. God is the one who does that. As you respond to his word and, and obey it, you will grow spiritually. And Paul is saying, I just happened to plant, Apollos did the watering, and God is the one who brought forth the fruit, not me. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 8, Paul transitions the, um, the discussion into, from, from the division into the part that each person plays in the body of Christ. And he, then he starts talking here about rewards. The idea of rewards. Um, he's saying, you know, the one who waters and the one who plants, you know, they, they're all the same in, in God's sight. They all have a different role, but they, they, they're all part of God's program. And he's going to really expound on spiritual gifts later in, in chapter 12. He's going to really go into that. But what he's saying here is that don't worry. The idea here is don't worry about what somebody else is doing. Worry about yourself. What's God called you to do? 
What's your part? For we are God's fellow workers. Who's the we there? Who's he talking about with we? Apollos and him. You know, the, the, the ones who preach. The, we're, we're fellow laborers. What does it mean to be a fellow laborer? What's the concept of fellow laborer there? Yeah, and, and, and the idea of being a fellow laborer means they don't work for you. <laughs> they work with you. Do you understand that in this body of Christ, Christ is the head and we're all underneath that at the same level. <clears throat> There's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. Now, there may be a organizational structure to a church just to make things happen. But when the body of Christ, when you look at the body of Christ, the invisible body of Christ, there is no hierarchy. We're all fellow laborers. We're all in it together. Christ is the head. We're all at the same level. Paul's saying we're just God's fellow laborers. You are God's field. You are God's building. I'm just a laborer in God's field. I go out and I work in the field, the mission field, whatever that is. You're the one that God is building up. I'm not building up. I'm just laboring faithfully. I'm no different than Apollos. There's no, there's no contest between us to see how many souls each one of us can save and we get a prize if we win. It's, we're, we're fellow laborers. And it says here, according to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another one builds on it. A lot of theology in this verse, and we're going to come back and hit it in chapter 12. But Paul is saying, according to the grace of God, which is given to me. What's he mean by that? What is grace? Undeserved favor. And, and the root word of gift in the Bible, by the way, is charis, which is the same word as grace. And Paul's basically saying, you know, my ministry is a gift from God. Think about it. God saves you, God redeems you, and then gives you a gift of serving him. And Paul's saying, I've, been, I've received a grace gift from God to serve him as a wise master builder I've laid the foundation and another builds on. He's using the metaphor of a building. And Paul said, you know, I just came across and I laid the foundation. And then somebody else comes along and they build on that foundation. All right. And let every one of you be careful by how you build on it. Be careful with what uh, materials you use when you build your building. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In the metaphor of Paul's building, who's the foundation? Christ. And how did Paul lay the foundation in these people's lives? He came in and he, he was the first one to preach the word. He's the first one that brought the gospel to them. That's the foundation. The foundation of your spiritual life is what? Your salvation, your belief in Christ. That, that's where it starts. And from that foundation which was laid, you now begin to build on that foundation. Alright? And Paul is saying you better watch what you build. And with what you build. 
If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious... Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test everyone's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. Paul's here talking about reward, eternal reward. And um, there, there's a lot of, um, I guess, misunderstanding about eternal rewards that a lot of people have. When you look at the Bible, I remember sitting through many sermons talking about the five crowns you can get. You know, and I remember thinking as a kid, you know, sort of like the Imperial Margarine commercial, you know, take a bite of butter and ding, 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 you got a crown pop on your head, you know. Um, huh? Yeah, Burger King. I, I remember the Imperial Margarine commercial, if you all remember back that far, you know. You spread margarine on it, take a bite and get a crown on your head. Um, and, and I was taught that, you know, when we get to heaven, you know, God's going to be passing out all of these crowns that we'll be lugging around, you know, that we'll have all these different crowns, I don't know what. And um, that's really not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about crowns. Um, when the Bible talks about receiving a crown of, let's say, life, it talks about the crown of life. Um, the actual Greek construct is you will receive a crown which is life. What is a crown? Well, when we think of crown, what do you think of? Royalty, you know, rulership, uh, you know, you, you know, a king or a queen or whatever. Um, that's the Greek word diadema, which means crown, the royal crown. Um, but the word that Paul uses is Stephanos. Stephanos was the word used for the the laurel wreath that was won by the athletes in the in the games. And what happens in the games? Well, you know, you you compete in your 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 contest, whatever it is, your event, and if you win, you receive a Stephanos, a crown. A it's a, usually a laurel wreath. How long do those last? Not very long. But, you know, there's some perks that went along with it, like you were free from taxation the rest of your life and a few other things if you'd win these events. Um, but the, the reward was that, that, that wreath. Paul is saying your reward is not a crown named life. Your reward is life, eternal life, right? That's what he's saying. What is your, what, and then it talks about uh, the crown of glory. What's the crown of glory? Well, the crown which is glory. You don't have a crown named G-L-O-R-Y on it. You, you get glory. You get eternal life. There's an incorruptible reward that you get. What does it mean by that? It's a reward that does not fade with time. It endures. The reward that you get in heaven is not something that, you know, who won the 1964 Super Bowl? Name the guys on the team. He, my luck, John will rattle them off, you know. It wasn't the Browns. It wasn't the Browns. Okay. They won the NFL championship. But name the team, you know. We don't know. We don't know who they are. See, now, if I said the Indians, you'd probably... Well, they never did win. They never won the World Series, did they? Yeah, okay. Um, they won the title in 54, right? No, they lost. 
That's where, oh, that's right. That, that, was that the miracle catch over the back or something like that? that yeah. <laughs> the reason I say that is because you go to his office, he's got all the br all the Indians all around the wall, you know, all the pictures and all that stuff, you know. Yeah, but but the whole point there is that is that Paul is saying here we do receive a reward. What is our reward as a believer for faithful service? We get eternal life. Now, what kind? How many kinds of eternal life are there? One. One. <laughs> you either got it or you don't. All right. Um, you get it or you don't have it. So, so there's no differentiation there. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of interpretation given to that. They say, well, that refers to the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints who cast their crowns. Um, there's a sense in which we will cast our crowns, and in the fact that God did it all anyway. So why should I receive a reward? Um, but a billion years from now in eternal heaven, um, we all have eternal life. Is that talking about like the crown, like Stephanus? The Stephanus it would be, all right. Um, we, we do receive a, a reward for faithful service. God is going to give us a reward, which we're going to turn around and give back to him, all right. But eternal rewards, it's not like we walk around heaven a billion years from now with a cache of crowns on our head because um, we all have eternal life um, some say well your reward is that in the in eternal heaven you're going to be given rulership over cities right now I want to stop and think who are you going to rule over everybody's perfect right what's there to rule over What's there? What's there to? What kind of? What, what's the government of the eternal state? Everybody's perfect. You know, there's no need for police. There's no need for governors or mayors. Thank goodness you're not going to have Congress in heaven. I mean, there, there's in the eternal state, we're perfect. There is no need for a governmental structure. So where does that come in for believers? I mean, it says if we. Suffer for him or rule with him. What does it mean to rule with Christ? Well, it says we'll sit with him in his throne. We'll, and, and, and it does talk about in, in the Gospels there that, that some will receive rulership over one city, some ten cities. What does that mean? What are we going to do in eternal state? I mean, what, what needs to be done? Welcome you... Uh we're all perfect. There's nobody else added. There's no babies born. So we just be glorifying God. We get to spend eternity getting to know God, which is sort of a cool thing, right? We'll be doing things. We'll be exploring new things. Yeah, and the Bible doesn't tell us that. I mean, I, you can't get in and you know, like, what are we going to be doing a billion years from today? You know, what's our schedule like? Our day planner? I don't know. It's it's going to heaven's a different plane of existence. The point is. In the eternal state, everyone is perfect. Everyone is holy. Everyone is, is righteous. You can't be more righteous than righteous. You can't be more perfect than perfect. Um, you look at Rome, or Revelation 22, 21 and 22, God is among us. There's no, he, he talks with us. We can see him face to face. There's a, a communion that, that is on, we can't even comprehend at this level. 
But where our rulership comes in is in the millennium, right? When the Lord comes back and sets up his kingdom, who's going to rule with him? We are. Part of our reward for faithfulness is that we will be given responsibility during that time of the millennium. We'll rule with Christ. We'll serve with him. But in the eternal state, we're all equal. There, there's, no, who, there's no one to rule over. <laughs> Because everyone is perfectly glorified. But where does that degree fit in? I believe it fits in the millennium. I believe that. I believe the reward fits into the millennium. All right. And where do I get that? I mean, I'm not just making that up. All right. But where I get that is if you look at the parable of the pounds in Luke. Remember the. Master went off and he called in ten servants. He gave each of them a mina. That's a hundred days' wages. All right. He said, "I want you to go and I want you to invest that." That's what it means. Pragmatuomai. It doesn't mean occupy till I come. It doesn't mean you know occupy. You know, sit on it. That's a very bad translation. The word pragmatuomai. We get pragmatic from that. It means to go and invest it, trade it. You know, go, go, go. I want to see what happens. You know, what, why is he doing this? He's going to go get a kingdom. Why does he want these guys? Why does he give them this money? He wants to test them. See, you know, when I come back and I, if I'm his king and I come back with a kingdom, who do I need to help me run it? Competent people. Well, how do I know they're competent or not? Well, let's give them a test. Let's give them a pound. Let's see what happens, you know. So the king comes back. He receives the kingdom. He comes back. It's time to establish the kingdom. It's time to set up government. I need some people to help me. Who am I going to get to help me? Well, he calls these ten guys in. And what did the first guy say? Your pound is gained. Ten, isn't it? Yeah. Your pound is gained ten pounds. And the man said, great, ten cities. Why? He, I mean, that's a pretty good return, right? Next guy comes in. He says, well, I only got five pounds. Wonderful. You get five cities. You know, he didn't berate the guy. He said, well, why didn't he do as good as that other guy? He did something, right? He got five seeds. And then the other guy comes in and he says, well, here's your pound back. I was afraid to lose it. What did he say? You You're an evil and wicked servant. Take the pound from him. Give it to the one that has ten. And what happened to that third guy? No, he didn't get thrown out. He got it mixed up with the parable of the talents. He didn't get thrown into outer darkness where there's welling and gnashing of teeth. What happened? He was still a servant, but he didn't get any cities, did he? Who got the cities? Who got to serve with the king, the ones who were faithful? And that, I think, is the parable that Christ is bringing. When Christ, what has Christ done? He's gone to receive a kingdom, right? When's he going to come back and, and take, take control of that kingdom? Millennium, right? And when he comes back, who is he going to get to help him? us. How faithful are we with what he's given us? And we will get to serve with him. We will rule with him in his kingdom. And remember the disciples said, what's going to happen when you are in the restoration? And Christ says, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, in the Jewish mindset, what was the restoration? That was the kingdom, right? They were not thinking heaven, eternal state. They were thinking, when is God going to come and establish 
the physical earthly kingdom. And Christ says, your reward is that you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When is he going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel? During the millennium. Because when an eternal state starts, everybody is equally perfect, equally holy. There is no mortal people to rule over. There's no... Everybody's the same. I mean, Maybe finally we're not going to do anything in Oh, we're going to do a lot. It's going to be pretty interesting because for the first time in your life, you're going to do what God created you to do. We don't know what that is. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's wonderful. Are we, are we helping him prepare the new Jerusalem? Are we helping him prepare the new... I mean, he could prepare the new earth and the new Jerusalem himself. The Bible says he does that. He, he does that. The new, the new Jerusalem is already done. I mean, that's already completed. He, he built that. Training us to be the ruler? Is he preparing us for that while we're in the eternal state? No. Who are you going to rule over? No. You said I'm going to have you're going to rule over somebody in the millennium. In the millennium, but not the well, eternal state. But is he preparing me during the eternal state to become a ruler? You sound like a Mormon. <laughs> no, no. You make it sound like you do nothing in heaven. We're going to do a lot in heaven. We're going to get to spend eternity fellowshipping with one another and getting to know the infinite God. Now, we're finite, he's infinite, so how long is it going to take us to get to know him? Forever. And it's going to be interesting. I, you know, We're going to be praising him in heaven, we're going to be worshiping in heaven, we're going to be able to talk to God. That's a heavy thing, right? Well, look at the end of... And it, the spirit and the bride say, come. Well, who's the bride? The church is. Who's the spirit? The Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit and the bride say come, what can you assume about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the bride? They're together some way. You know, it's almost like they are inviting you <laughs> to heaven. It, it, it implies a closeness to them. You know, and, and it's not like we're, we're, we're bringing God down. We're going to be holy. We're going to be perfect. We're going to we're going to spend eternity getting to know this infinite holy God, and there's going to be things to do that we don't even know about yet. No lawyers needed, no tax guys. You know, you're not going to need me to teach you anything because you're all going to know it. Well, it says that uh, the leaves of the there's leaves there that are for the healing of the nation. So. Yeah, we can, I assume we can eat and we can enjoy it. Yeah, for the month. And, and you know, I like the way Vance Havner says it. He says, you know, God didn't tell us a lot about heaven because it would be like a little boy trying to eat a bowl of spinach with a chocolate cake in front of him. You know, it. I don't know. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be wondrous. Um, it's not going to be boring, you know, that... Good night. You know, a million year, a billion years sitting on a cloud thumbing a harp. You know, there's only no. It's not going to be that way at all. It's going to be, it's going to be a joyous time of. I mean, we can't even describe it. Well, how come they say that when you get a crown, like some people get more jewels in their crown? I know they they come up. I don't know where they come up with that. They say that. Yeah, well, you know, think about Billy Graham. Here's a guy going around with a million. I mean, he couldn't, have, he couldn't make a crown big enough with all the jewels you got to stick in the thing, you know? 
Yeah, that's folk theology. <laughs> that's folk theology. Um, Man, I heard a minister with a, a master said that one. He had a yeah. You understand that just because he says it doesn't make it right. No, you got to go back. You know, the Bible doesn't say. Where in the Bible does it say that you get jewels in your crown? I don't know where it does. It doesn't say that. The Bible nowhere does it say I walk around heaven with a sparkling crown on my head. It doesn't say that. The closest you get is the elders who cast their crowns before the throne. They say that's representative of the church that does that. But even that. You can't make it dogmatic that that's what's in view there. I mean, my reward, all I know is this. God saved me. He redeemed me. He empowered me to serve him. And I get rewarded for that, which is sort of a cool deal, right? That's sort of a win-win-win, isn't it? And all the, and why do I want to serve him? I want some more crowns, you know, I only got 28, I need 29, you know, I'm going to see how many crowns I can get. No, it's not, it's not the crass thing. I want to serve him because I love him, because of what he's done for me, the least I can do is serve him. And the wondrous thing about it is he rewards me for that, for doing what he's empowered me to do. That's the wild thing. He empowers me. How do you obey him? He empowers you to obey him, and then he rewards you for doing what he's empowered you to do. You can't lose. You can't lose. And Paul is saying, how do you get an eternal reward? What do you build with? And he uses materials that those people would know. Gold, silver, precious stones. Um, if a fire hits that, what happens? Well, it might melt, but you still it's still there, right? And if anything, what does fire do to gold? It purifies it. So so those things are still there. Now, if you hit, you know, wood, hay, stubble, what happens there? Poof. And so the metaphor that Paul is using here is saying, consider, you know, you show up in heaven and there's your house that you built. Now, it's not, when we get to heaven, it's not going to say, okay, here's your house, now I'm going to light a match and see what's there, you know. That's not, that's not what it's talking about. But he's using it as a metaphor to show them that what you build with will determine the eternal value of whether you receive a reward for that or not. If you don't use the proper materials, you're not going to have much left. Now, are you going to be saved? Sure, you're going to be there. You're going to be like that guy in, in Luke, you know. Here, Lord, here's your pound back. Hope you're happy. I didn't lose it. You're going to get to heaven, but... You know what the gold, silver, and No. And see, that, here's, here's the thing I understand. People preach all kinds of sermons, well, gold is whatever. That's not, Paul's just using a general metaphor to help you understand, in a very general sense, that we are all building a house on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our spiritual life, we're building that. And we get to heaven, we're going to see a reward for how well or how badly, or suffer loss for how badly we built that. Um, the significance is not in, well, gold and silver and platinum and stone. That's not the significant significance of what lasts and what doesn't last. And there just as there are varying degrees of things that last, right, there are varying worthless things, you know, wood, hay, stubble. You know, that's, that's decreasing value, just as gold, silver, precious stone is decreasing value. 
but you still receive a reward if it lasts. That that's that's what he's trying to get at. Don't go get going too bound up in well, gold means this and silver means this and oh, precious stone. That's the souls I win. I get a little jewel every time I win one. That's not what Paul's trying to get at here. So what is the yeah? We're not just talking about making ourselves less carnal and more spiritual. We're talking about solid work that lasts. Something yeah. Passed on. So what lasts? Legacy of sorts. Well, what lasts? Spreading the good news. What is fruit? Well, fruit is godly attitudes, right? We could practice down here. Um, godly attitudes. Fruit is winning souls. In fact, Paul later on says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? What is that? Are not even you. Now that is not a crown that you stick on your head. What's Paul saying? When he gets to heaven, what is one of his rewards? He'll see people that he was able to influence for Christ. He's going to see souls that were saved under his ministry. And that's going to be a reward. It's going to bring joy to his heart. It's going to reward. He said, when I get to heaven, one of my rewards is you there. That's my reward. It's not a crown I walk around with saying rejoicing on it. It's my rejoicing. When I get to heaven, it's going to be great joy to see you there. But everybody's not going to win souls. No. You know, everybody don't have that gift of when but you can be a godly person, right? You can, and and see, and here's the thing you got to understand here too. Here's the thing. In, in in God's economy, you know, God keeps track of of this in a way that we don't understand. You may never be there when someone prays the prayer to receive Christ, but you may have been there to yank a weed, and you may have been there to put a little water on the seed. And God takes that into consideration. Yeah. I remember as a very young, as a very young person, 16 years old, 15, 16, um, I used to visit some of my friends over in a church over in Akron. And uh, people in the church would have them, you know, the preacher and his wife and family over for dinner for the day, and then they'd, he'd preach at night. And we were at this one really nice nice house and this man and this woman were going to his church and they had never they were not Christians of course I didn't know that at the time they had not they were not Christian they were just going to the church and um, he, he had two sons that went that that became preachers and I was I was good friends with them and he had all three of us give like a little talk that night in the church it's like a little mini sermon first sermon I ever preached um, and um, many years later he said you know he said, those people weren't believers. He said, but I don't know if you knew this, Alan, but, um, you know, they were really challenged and encouraged by you. And one of the reasons they gave for becoming a Christian is they could see Christ in you and my boys. I'd have never known that, right? I didn't know that. I thought they were Christians. You guys, you don't know who you're going to reach. <laughs> You don't know who you're going to touch. And Paul is saying, be faithful and build with good materials. And what will happen? It'll last. Jordan Bailey didn't always 
impact of his life until Claire and children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I'll tell you what, there's, there's a tremendous amount of theology in that little... And that little that little thing, you don't know what impact you have on people. You just don't. You you don't know. And God knows. See, God, you know, God God knows. And you might, you know, you you know, if you get run over by a truck tonight and you go to heaven, you might have somebody come up and say, you know, I you don't know who I am, but you know, because of your ministry or because of something you said, I'm here tonight. You never know. God takes care of all that. He keeps track of all of that. Our job is to be faithful and to build with proper materials. Now that's what Paul's telling them to do. Build with the proper materials, because if you do, it'll last. If not, it'll burn up. You're there, but you're not going to receive a full reward. All right, do your best. And it says here, do you not know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy which temple you are. Here's another metaphor that he tosses in. He said, you know, you are the temple of God. In which sense are you the temple of God? The Spirit lives in you. And do you realize that every time you sin, guess who's right there with you? The Spirit is right there with you. He's saying you, you are the temple of God. And if you defile the temple of God, God is going to destroy him. The idea of destroy there is not destroy in hell. It's going to bring to ruin. I've heard um, elders use this as for suicide. But this indicates that someone who commits suicide will have That's, yeah, I think that's sort of a screwy interpretation. I don't think that's really what this is saying. Um, there's a lot of one of the one of the, one of the, hermen, one of the hermeneutics or rules of interpretation of the Bible is that the Holy Spirit could have said it, He would have. If God wanted to say suicide people don't suicide people who commit suicide don't go to heaven, it's easy enough for Him to say that without hiding it in some verse like this. I don't think that's what it's talking about here. I think what Paul is trying to get at one one of the problems that the Corinthians had is they lived in a very sinful culture. And Paul is saying, you know, you are the temple of God. And if you destroy that temple, if you defile that temple, that's a serious thing. Yeah. And that pops up again and again, this philosophical dualism. You know, Paul is saying, you know, it does matter what you do as a Christian. It does. It, it makes a difference. Let no one deceive himself. If any among you seems to be wise in this age... Let him become a fool, then he become wise. What does it mean there? Deceive yourself. Nope. You got to give up yourself. See, see, that's the paradox of Christianity. How do you become wise? You become a fool. How do you win? You lose. How do you get it all? You give it all up. It's the opposite. As long, and what the idea here is, as long as you're, you're relying in your own wisdom, you're not relying in God's wisdom, right? So you've got to let go of, what, of your wisdom, of what you think is right, and let God give you what is right. And the idea here is don't, let, don't deceive yourself. That's a fascinating concept. 
We, you know, we snooker ourselves every day. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we're something when we're really nothing. You know, if, if God were to come in and say, okay, Alan, on a scale of 1 to 10, how spiritual you are, no matter what number I would put down there other than maybe zero, it's probably wrong, right? Because <laughs> we all think of ourselves as more godly than we really are. We All, all of us in here are going to fall into that trap. Because what do we do? We say, there's Bart over there. You know, I'm, be I'm, I'm better than Bart. You know, I'm not a tax collector like he is. And I'm, I'm not a lawyer. That Oh, boy, if I was a lawyer, that'd be hard. You know. But don't we do that, right? We compare ourselves. And when we do that, we deceive ourselves. There's one standard to compare yourself against. That's God's perfect, holy standard. And when it comes to that, we're all big, fat zeros. We, we, don't, we don't rate on that scale. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. We talked about this in the first class. I'm not going to belabor it, but you know, every answer the world has to their problems is wrong. You know that? Every answer they come up with is wrong. It doesn't matter whether you're Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, whether you live in this country or some other country. Whatever answer men come up with, it's the wrong answer. Because how, what wisdom are they depending on? Their own wisdom. And if somebody gets them and says, well, let's see what God says, they're laughed out of the place. Like here comes some kind of throwback to a Neanderthal. For Pete's sake, get the Christians out of here. They'll mess it up. He catches the wise in their own craft. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. God is so much smarter and wiser than mankind that there's no way you can get one step up on him. He's got you figured out. You can't, you can't trick God. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas of the world or life or death, all things present or all things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Don't boast in men. Why? They're failing. They, they aren't God. Doesn't matter whether you're Cephas, Paul, Christ, doesn't matter, or Cephas or Paul or Apollos. As believers, who do we focus on? Christ. Don't focus on other people. You know, and that's a sad thing. You know, there are people that, you know, they put their faith in other men, and then when those people, you know, commit a sin or fall into moral impurity or something, their their, their whole Christian life is like shot to pieces. And it's like, don't put your don't put your trust in man, right? Because they're going to fail. They're going to fail. Put your trust in God. He he, he will never fail doesn't mean that we can't appreciate the the godly contribution that men have made, like the MacArthur Study Bible or whatever, you know. I mean, I can appreciate that, but you know what? I don't follow John. When I want to find out what is right, the first question I don't ask is, well, what does John MacArthur think? Yeah, that's maybe the second thing. I'm going to ask, you know, what does the Bible say? What does the, what's the Bible say about that? What, what's the scripture say? This is my authority, not some guy or man. 
And Paul is getting after this church because they've been fractured and fragmented into all these little personality cults. And they're, they're, they're scrapping with each other, trying to say that their little guy is better than the other guy. And Paul is saying, you guys are acting carnally. You're acting like mere men. You're acting like the world. And you're going to build a structure that's going to wind up being burned to ashes. Because that's not going to last. Helen, do you think this, this uh, church was different groups in the same city or one It was one church. It's one congregation. They might have been spread throughout the city, but there was one congregation. You didn't have first church of Corinth, second church of Corinth, third church of Corinth. There was one church in Corinth. All right. And then Paul says in verse verse 1 of chapter 4, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. How, how should you, Paul saying, how should you view me? I'm a servant of Christ. What does it mean to be a servant? When we think of servant, what do you think of? A where, like lurch. You know, you rang. Donna got the first season of Adam's Family. That's hilarious. I love that, you know. We think of a servant, you know. That's what we think of. The word here uses doula, slave. It's, it's, it's someone who, who served at the whim of the master. Paul says, you know, when you think of me, you think of me as a slave of Christ. In other words, it's not what I want. It's what he wants. It's not my desire. It's his desire. I do what he wants. And not only am I a slave, but I am a steward of the mysteries of God. What's a steward? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not the owner. It's the one who manages something, right? I mean, John, you're, you're familiar with this in the legal term. Somebody comes in and says, you know, I've got, I've got 20 million bucks and I want put it in a trust. And you have trustees of that trust or whatever. And what do they do? They, they're entrusted with that money, and it's their job to ensure that that money is cared for under the, 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 the contract of the trust, whatever it is. Um, they are to manage it. They are to care for it. You know, that is their responsibility. If they violate that trust, there are legal penalties for doing that. Ask Ken Lay. Well, I guess you can't ask him lay now. Um, but, that, and Paul is saying, God has given me, and he uses this frequently in his writings, God has given me the truth, the gospel. It is a trust, it is something extremely valuable. It's not mine, I don't own it, but God has given it to me and entrusted me to manage it and to preach it and to treat it the right way. I am a steward of the mysteries of God. I'm a manager. I'm not the owner. I'm a manager. And someday the owner is going to come back and he's going to say, Paul, how'd you do? And that's one of the things God's, you know, God's given all of us in here truth. And God holds us accountable for how we deal with that truth, how we manage it. We're managers. And he's saying the, the requirement more of is required in stewards that one be found faithful. What is the number one quality that you want in a steward or a trustee? Someone who's responsible, right? You don't want to give it to the hands of a, 
you know, of an immature moron that's going to waste it. You're going to want to give it to someone who's wise and will manage it appropriately. Parents do that, you know, they're not going to leave a million dollars to a five-year-old. They're going to put it in a trust, usually, and, until that child comes of age or something like that. It's going to be managed for them. And what is the requirement of being a steward? You've got to be faithful to what you've been called. What's God requiring us as stewards? Faithfulness. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. I don't even judge myself. Paul's saying, you know, your, your estimation of me is really irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Because, you know, the, the treasure I have is not your treasure. It's God's treasure. And that's one thing Paul, Paul had a good grasp of this. He says, you know, I'm not worried about what people think. I'm really worried about what God thinks. That's, that's who worries me. I'm much more worried about what God thinks of my ministry than what any man down here thinks of it. He's saying, I don't know, I know nothing of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified in this, but he who judges me is of the Lord. Here's what Paul is saying. Who do we give an account for when it comes to our stewardship of what God has given us? God. I don't give an account to you. You, you, you aren't going to judge me in heaven. You're not going to be responsible for describing what kind of reward I should or shouldn't get. We are all going to stand before Christ himself and receive a reward. He is the rewarder. And so, as a believer, should I be worried necessarily about what you think of me? No. No, I need to be worried about what God thinks of me. And what Paul is saying, he said, you know... I don't even know myself what I, I can't even evaluate myself. Now, if I can't evaluate myself, am I going to be able to evaluate you? No. Who does the evaluation? God does. Paul says, I don't even know, he says, I don't know anything against myself, but that doesn't mean that I'm right. That doesn't mean that. He who judges me is of the Lord, therefore judge nothing before the time the Lord comes will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, reveal the counsel of the heart. Then shall each man have praise from God. Each one's praise will come from God. The point is, ultimately, who is the one who's going to be able to perfectly, completely, and impartially reward you? God is. Not you. And when God gives you a reward, that is a true reward. Because he's not, he's not partial. And it's, Paul is saying, don't judge anything before that time. Don't go around judging other Christians about what kind of reward they should or shouldn't have. In fact, Paul says, you know, even if you think you should get a good reward, you may not. Because you know what? You may not know all there is to know about you. So don't, don't do that. Don't fall into that. Let God do the rewarding. And then each one will have praise of God. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. You may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another. For who makes you differ from one another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had received it? What's Paul saying here? He's saying, you know, one of the problems that you at Corinthians and Corinth have is you're walking around comparing yourselves to everybody else. 
well, my reward is better than his reward. Or I got more than he. Or I, I, he said, Paul's saying, here's a question for you. What, did you what do you have that you didn't receive? What's the rhetorical answer to that? Well, Nothing. Nothing. And, and this keys in very well later on with the concept of the spiritual gifts that Paul brings up in chapter 12. He's saying, you know, God is a source of 100% of everything you have. All you are is a steward. And what is your responsibility as a steward? Faithfulness with what God has given you, not with what God has given somebody else. One of the great disasters you have in spiritual gifts is that we want to exercise somebody else's spiritual gift. You can't do that. you got to exercise the one God gave you. What did God give you? That's your gift. Go for it. Use it. And instead of trying to walk around comparing your spirituality or your giftedness or your abilities or your pecking order in the kingdom with someone else, just worry about what God has given you. You're a steward. What happened? What were the disciples doing when Christ was on his way to getting crucified? Remember going down to Jerusalem? What are they arguing about? Yeah, who gets to sit on your left and right hand? And the disciples were really ticked when John and James came up, right, and got mom to go and vouch for her kids. That didn't help them any. Here's Christ going up to be crucified, and they're arguing about who gets to sit where. Now, were they acting spiritually or carnally? Yeah, that's not a trick question. They're acting carnally. And what do we do when we walk into church and we start comparing ourselves with other people and start, I'm not perfect, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy over there, you know, I'm better than that person. We fall into this trap here. Do you understand that every spiritual gift, every talent, every your very next breath, everything you have is a gift from God? Therefore, you have no right to boast of any of it. Don't compare yourself. I remember a man that I used to work with in the church here told me one time, and all seriousness said, Alan, he says, you know, the only better teacher at Open Door than me is you. <laughs> you know, and he, he seriously said that. I'm not making this up. He said that. And I started thinking about it, and I said, why in the world would you compare yourself with someone else? Right? I mean, the, the very fact that he said that told me he was acting carnally or spiritually? Carnally. You don't compare yourself. My biggest fear is coming here and teaching you guys something that's wrong. I'm not trying to compare myself with somebody else in this church. There's no contest. Right? There shouldn't be. And I go on and say, well, you know, I'm a better teacher than that person. The only reason I can teach here is because God's given me what? A gift. And by the way, it's not my great intellect or abilities that gives me this. It's God who's empowered me to do it. I'm no different than anyone else. And we have no right, and, and it's going to really be borne out in chapter 12, Paul saying, no, the, the eyeball says, well, I'm not the foot, I'm the eye, I'm better than the foot. 
That's the high eye, remember the eye and hand and foot syndrome. And the foot shouldn't say, well, I'm not the eye, I'm, I guess I'm not worth anything. You know, if it wasn't for your feet, your eyes wouldn't have much to look at, would they? You have no right to do that. I, I cannot judge another person's heart. I cannot judge another person's faithfulness to God. I cannot judge their abilities or I can't. That's not for me to do. It's my job to take what God has given me and be as faithful with it as I can be with that because I am a steward of what he's given me. And the second I start comparing myself and trying to make myself feel good because I have a little bit better talent than this guy over here, I can sing better than that lady or that man or something, you're going down the carnal path. Yeah. I remember one, one lady in the church she left the church, their family left the church because she didn't get to sing like she wanted to. Now, is she acting spiritually or carnally? It's carnal. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.